This piece, Unfreezing Legal Reality, is a bit more of a manifesto than Kelman's piece and describes in a bit more, well, a bit more expansively, kind of the goals of the critical legal studies movement. And so, so what are those goals? I think the first that he identifies is the resurrection of legal realism and the application of legal realism against kind of the new economic liberalism. So similar to what we heard from Kelman, it's using the, some of the ideas that the legal realists had to attack normative law and economics and neoliberalism more generally. Secondly is to push the law in more egalitarian, decent directions from Gordon's point of view. So to move toward a social and legal system that's less ordered by class and race and status and, and even merit, and generally to oppose hierarchy and patterns of domination and to reveal them for what they are. So here are the targets. Here's an interesting description of law that Gordon and the crits are going to attack. First, legal discourse itself, the way that we talk, the way we write briefs, the way we write opinions, the way that the law speaks, contributes to seeing the status quo as desirable. There's a kind of stability that is implicit in the way that law is discussed, but that stability quickly becomes instead of a thing we observe, a thing that we desire in the law. Think back to Llewellyn's discussion of how precedent becomes a normative, desirable thing rather than just a useful thing. And that desirability locks in place a status quo. And it may even do so in an insidious way, Gordon says, because many people believe that law and the distributions of entitlements under the law are just rational. And they become entrenched that way. That law only asks of us what we would voluntarily do anyway. And it doesn't intervene in our private choices unless it's absolutely necessary. And so law justifies outcomes by reference to voluntary agreements, by natural endowments like talent, and, and efficiency as a value that will suffer if we don't do something. Okay, third point, though, is that the discourse reflects the interests of the powerful. If we were to back away from the discourse... Would it be at all plausible, Gordon asks, that workers in a, well, in what he calls a health-destroying factory are making a choice in the same way that a wealthy person chooses a flavor of ice cream? Are those the same thing? We use the same word choice, but is that really what's going on? Fourth, the discourse has an order, a sensibility that, that owes to its apparent derivation from important principles like autonomy and wealth. And so not only is the discourse like natural seeming, not, do, not only does it reflect the interests of the powerful, but it also has an internal sense of order. And that order is tied to important sounding principles. Now, okay, if that's the problem, how do the crits respond? And here there are really three major points. And then we'll get into this case that he discusses. The first, the crits will advance what they call counter discourses, alternative visions of social life that illustrate, for example, the non-voluntariness of the factory worker. So story, story that tells the lives of real humans is important for showing us that the law has accepted something that is in fact not true. Secondly, the crits focus on revealing how legal rules that appear to resolve cases on their own terms in fact are indeterminate. And this shows that legal conclusions are not at all inevitable and not obviously desirable. 
And third, the crits argue that the legal discourse filters out our social experience to remove lots of complexity, variety, uncertainty, disorder, irrationality, cruelty. The upshot is that through all of these three things, the crits are trying to what Gordon calls thaw out frozen minds, minds which have taken too much for granted. The crits want to show a better way. Okay, so enter this case, Vokes. A woman, Audrey Vokes, enters a contract for dance lessons. And after a free session, she's told she's a great dancer, etc., etc., usual kind of puffery, and she pays for eight half-hour lessons. But over time, she repeatedly renews and is eventually on the hook for $31,000 for 2,300 hours of lessons. Now, the trial judge treated this as just a normal case of contract default. The normal framing here being the what Gordon considers inherently conservative one, presuming freedom and efficiency of private bargains. And so what Vokes really has to do is to struggle against that normal framing, because that's the normal story we tell about these relationships. Vokes has to now fit her story into the abnormal categories, categories like duress and fraud and mistake. And the Court of Appeals in this case settled on fraud. The way that Gordon charts this out is interesting. If you look on page 203, of the article. He places kind of normal stories or normal justifications on one side and deviant justifications on the other. And what are the normal justifications? Well, this was the will of the parties, that it was a market transaction, that we prefer private ordering. Whereas deviant cases are those where we use public policy to settle the case, or that we regulate, or that we publicly intervene. But if we're forced into the fraud framing, we're forced to demonstrate that this case was unlike almost all other cases. It was deviant. We have to show how the rational actor model failed and observe how it broke down. As Gordon phrases it, we're pushed into arguing that there were bugs in Vokes' data input. But as he asks, does anyone really think of life this way? Do we really think of our everyday interactions this way? Much less a situation like this. Does this really capture the full lived experience of Vokes and the studio? Well, maybe it's possible to reframe this narrative, appealing to different kinds of principles. Here's what Gordon says. The commodity the studio men are supplying is much more than dancing skills. It's the sensation of being alive and exciting. Okay, to to a woman who's lonely and vulnerable. So these guys sell flattery and attention. What follows from that? So, well, you know, you might argue they, they sell something different. She was buying. She was willing to pay for whatever it is they were offering, and they're all adults. They knew it was up. So if we bar this sale, it it hurts people like her. She can't acquire the kinds of things that she apparently was after. But what if we thought a little bit differently? What if we thought like this? And here's Gordon. The idea is that in relationships in which people have achieved a certain level of intimacy and an expectation of mutual trust, there should be a big change in the legal ground rules affecting their interaction. Once a party has come to expect that the other will not take every advantage of her that he can, and her guard is down, the other's room for self-interested strategic maneuvering should be limited. Well, that kind of understanding leads us to a different chart. Look at the one on 207. Now, there's not just kind of the deviant state of affairs. These are the ones involving traditional market failure and then the normal state of affairs. Now there's something in between, an intermediate category of the fiduciary, Gordon says that it's really amazing that this very natural way of understanding our obligations has been replaced in the law with 
in what he calls the neo-Hobbesian nightmare of arms-length transactions. Contract is the only safe way to deal with one another. Which is kind of weird, because that's not even how businesses work. Sophisticated businesses. The law speaks in a language of strict adherence to contract and sticking people with the terms that they, to which they agreed. But in fact, it's precisely because people don't insist on adherence to every letter of every contract that the world is even able to work, Gordon argues. In the business world, there are relationships that work, and resort to contract is not formal and absolute. So in Vokes, the court just enforces kind of the everyday expectation that the other party will deal fairly with the other, will deal with them in good faith, is the way that they put it. So we can make a new diagram showing all of the aspects of these relationships that need to be supported in order to give rise to real freedom of contract or the values of contract that we're trying to aim at. Just as protection against fraud actually promotes voluntary contract, so do all kinds of other things, like in this case, maybe a fiduciary obligation in close cases like this. And here's what Gordon says. The point of the new diagram is that all the moves that the classical liberal wants to characterize as state intervention into or regulation of the regime of private contracting can easily be recast as protecting and fostering the regime of private contracting itself. Okay, so now we're really getting to it. Is private contracting about giving people the autonomy to structure their relationships with others? Is it about their freedom to arrange their own affairs? And if so, do we improve on that project by having lots of exceptions to the enforcement of contract, exceptions which recognize when, in fact, what looks like a contract isn't really voluntary. Well, now it looks like even our zone of normal contract, driven by normal principles, the ones we kind of took for granted, will lead to lots of exceptions if we look really carefully, maybe exceptions that will swallow the clear rules that we thought we had. And this drives the classical liberal nuts. But that's only... Gordon and the Crits say, because the so-called category of normal contract was never really that determinate to begin with. It was always composed of controversial political choices. Gordon writes, the slogan of free contract is like the slogan of private property. They're both empty, and they don't adequately specify what goes on in a capitalist economy. The issue is always, what kind of property, what kind of contracting regimes should a legal system put its force behind? Abstract notions of property and contract, liberty and efficiency, give one literally no help at all in answering those questions. And see, that's really what Vokes is all about. It shows us that to know what to do with this dispute, which has arisen out of a relationship, our principles of contract and free, and these abstract notions can be pushed in either direction. There just are no normal cases that we don't have collective choice in. Every case, as Gordon says, is a tiny enterprise of world creation. It's all in how the facts are read to fit into the various somewhat arbitrary categories. Okay, now at the end of this piece, Gordon responds to a charge that, well, if there is no law of rules, if every case is so open, so open-textured, that it's basically a liquid, if you want to take Hart's analogy of open texture, then What's to save us from totalitarianism? From, in every case, judges just doing whatever they want? Well, let me put that question to you when we meet. What do you think about that? Are you worried about it? All right, let's talk about that next time. <laughs>